Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Our guest today is Charles Moldo, general partner at Foundation Capital, a legendary VC fund founded in 1995 that has raised nine funds, received over $3 billion in committed capital, has seen 28 IPOs and over 80 acquisitions from the portfolio companies. Charles has been at Foundation since 2005, having led impressive investments like Uber, Lending Club, OnDeck, and Rappi. Before Foundation, he lived the startup journey and was part of the founding team of two high-profile startups with successful exits in 97 and 2006. He's also a proud alum of our amazing Wharton School. We discussed Charles' experience as an operator and entrepreneur through the dot-com bubble and why he eventually transitioned to the investing side, thought process behind his investment strategy and reflections on some of his early mistakes as a venture capitalist, all things fintech, including trends he's most excited about, Foundation's impressive track record and their secret behind this success, why he's particularly excited about the entrepreneurial scene in Latin America, and a whole lot more. I hope you enjoy this wonderful interview with Charles Moldo. Charles, welcome and thank you for joining us on the Wharton FinTech Podcast. Thrilled to have yet another alum representing Wharton. So excited about that. How are you doing today? I am all good. I feel like it was so long ago I went that I feel like I was probably there when Ben Franklin was starting the university. It's a long ago. It <laughs> uh, it's, it's all good. It's all good. You are definitely not, uh, not the oldest we've had on, on the podcast, if that makes you feel any better. <laughs> very modestly better. Not <laughs> Great. So, Charles, you're joining us from the Bay Area, from California. Maybe you can take us through your journey, right? I know you're originally from the East Coast, but maybe you can tell us how uh, you went from Connecticut to Penn and then on to a very successful career. Yeah, it's a little bit of a wandering journey through the desert, maybe, but some of it was very directed and some of it was maybe luck or happenstance, as it were. But I was on the Wharton conveyor belt to Wall Street, along with all my other A personality, hyper vigilant, anal retentive Wharton students. Our self worth was measured in whether we got M and A jobs at the hardest Drexel, Lehman, Merrill, whatever. So I did that. I did the M and A experience four years, and then got into HBS. And after I'd gotten in, I received an offer to go work as head of development for a publishing company of all things. And it was such an interesting offer that I decided not to go back to HBS and to kind of defer for a year or two. And I worked at this publishing company, which was pretty fascinating. This is like pretty well, pre, this is pre-internet. And then a year later decided to still go back to business school. But it kind of was important because just by way of background, there were two guys in my analyst class at Merrill Lynch Jeff Bezos was in my analyst class and another guy, Halsey Minor. And Halsey was the founder of CNET. And then he was the personal Series A investor in Salesforce. And so that ultimately comes back in my career because I went to HBS and my specific area of interest was in kind of media and telecommunications and computing at the time, which were kind of colliding, but people thought it was going to collide into the home with things like um, video on demand. 
So I graduated in 93 from business school. And in 94, it started to become apparent that CompuServe and Prodigy were primarily how people would uh, interact online if they did at all. But this thing called the internet was just starting. And that was really fascinating. And so I did a kind of a back of the envelope thing, which basically said like, the battle is going to be for the wire into the home. Whoever controls the home controls the internet at some level. And you had the phone companies and you had the cable companies and the phone company twisted pair copper wire had really limited capacity because it's such a small wire. And the coaxial cable wire is a big fat wire with a dumb network behind it. But it felt like over time, if anybody was going to control the home, it would be the cable companies. And so I went and worked for the largest cable company in the world, Telecommunications Inc., for a very famous guy, John Malone, who's a pretty amazing entrepreneur himself, and uh, went to TCI in Denver. And our whole focus was, how do we invest behind this oncoming thing that we believed in called the internet. And we decided to start a company in 94 to help the cable industry. Here we were the biggest cable company to help the cable industry bring internet access into the homes because the cable industry didn't have any notion of two-way networks, caching, email servers, security, billing, there was nothing. So we started this company at home network to be the underlying infrastructure of the cable industry to bring internet access into the home. And so I moved out to California to start that company in 95, and we took it public in 98. And in 99, we had a $44 billion market cap, which is kind of crazy in hindsight, but it was kind of people perceived it as the future, and AOL at the time was kind of the past. And we eventually sold that to AT&T, and I went on to join a group of guys who I had a lot of respect for, who had just started a company called Tell Me, which is kind of the precursor to Siri. And we kind of ran that business and sold it to Microsoft for about $800 million four years later. It built a $100 million recurring revenue stream before people talked about the concept of ARR. And after those two kind of really nice successful outcomes, I was pretty burnt out of startups and decided to kind of go back to my financially minded experiences. And so decided to do investing in venture given my startup experience and actually even focus to the extent I could on the world of fintech. And I've been doing that for 15 and a half years. It's crazy. Yeah. And that's definitely longer than most fintech investors, right? Yeah. So you okay. probably have a very interesting perspective to the evolution of fintech, right? I mean, you clearly still believe that it has a lot of future and the room to grow because that's your focus. Yeah. Right? Maybe you can tell us that, or why focus or continue to focus on fintech or financial services. Yeah. You know, the thing that I don't think people adequately understood is that the enterprise market, if you break it all down into all the different subsegments of the enterprise, is probably about a $4 trillion market. And if you map out fintech, inclusive of insurance, the fintech insurance market's about a $3 trillion market. And yet you'd say that you know, probably 95% of all, if you just said how much of high of 100% of dollars that goes toward enterprise and fintech, how would it divide out for getting consumer and other things? You'd probably say it's about 97.3 enterprise investing versus fintech investing, yet the market is 75% as large and certainly large enough to accommodate many, 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 you know, tens of billions of dollars or larger winners. And so for the last, you know, better part of over a decade, we've been kind of slicing and dicing what we think of as the kind of value chain of fintech, trying to understand and have a point of view on all the different like major industries, right? Because 
you've got lending and you've got non-bank lending, you've got banking and banking infrastructure and asset management and insure tech. And inside insure tech, you have consumer and commercial and small business, and you have direct consumer and you have captive agents and you have independent agents. And right, if you start blowing this, this map apart, you realize that there are tens of multi-billion dollar industries to invest in inside the fintech markets. And so, you know, at Foundation, we've got five people, uh, which is a huge team, just focused on like, those areas. And it's been incredibly productive for us. We don't probably put, I mean, I think Ribbit puts more capital to work than we do for sure. But otherwise, team-wise, we're probably the second largest team focused on it. And our hit rate is insanely high. I don't know, we've probably made about 30 investments over the last decade. And we sold one for under cash invested. And quite frankly, that's a timing thing. If we had held on a little bit longer, we probably would have made some good money on it. And we've probably made money on 10 or 11, and we're probably deeply in the money on 17 or 18. So the hit rate has just been insane. Yeah, you're definitely going, uh, you're bucking the trend, right, of our low dynamics in VC. I know that one of your, one of your focuses has been on, on lending and credit, right? Particularly marketplaces and, and peer-to-peer. You've been focused for a number of years and you backed Lending Club, of course. What's your take on the state of the industry? Because it has gone through some ups and downs. Yeah. I'll use this as an example of the difference, I think, between a firm who's focused on fintech and a firm who happens to do fintech deals, which are very different to me. So we identified non-bank lending back a decade ago and made four key investments at the time. Lending Club on deck, Ox Money, which is the lending club of Germany, basically, and Lending Home, which is secured real estate. And all of them were utilizing like the very beginnings of really what people thought of as machine learning, but it's heard better decision analysis and utilization of information to make underwriting decisions and securing capital by means other than big warehouse lines and securitization. And so those investments all worked really well. And it became clear over time that the marketplace, while being a really efficient, providing an efficient access to capital is complex and expensive to run, especially at the retail level, and that there is, has been so much capital available in the form of bank lines and wholesale lines and direct bank investing that you have, didn't really need to go down that route. And that it really came down to acquisition and acquisition cost. And so the market became somewhat undifferentiated. And so when we stopped investing, we were convinced that there was really no big way to continue to see outsized returns in the space. So we haven't made an investment in that world in seven or eight years yet. I continue to see people make investments in that space at really, really large multiples. And what I will assure you is that over the fullness of time, lending trades like specialty lending, and specialty lending trades at one to two times revenue. And yet you see startups uh, getting funded at 10 to 15 times revenue all the time. And you have upstart trading at, I don't know what they are now, eight, nine times revenue. You got a firm trading at 20 times revenue. And Square, obviously before Square Cash was pretty much a lending business traded at a pretty high multiple. But like you're just over time going to see compression unless those businesses can find some way to differentiate their acquisition channels uh, such that they're not just simply competing with a lending club and a Marcus and a Prosper and a firm and all the others who do the same thing. And so good example of a market that we got in early because that was very hot. We got, we made a lot of money. We got out 
And we moved on you know, long ago to things like banking and banking infrastructure for some very obvious reasons. Now, I know you didn't ask this question, but interestingly, uh, the world is going to kind of come all the way back around because although nobody's talking about this now, the simple fact is as these kind of debit card companies really start to come to fruition, let's just take Chime as an example, right? Over time, they're going to learn that you can't ultimately build large businesses on debit interchange as your primary and only source of revenue because other companies are going to marry debit and credit. And banks make about 70% of their earnings based on their lending businesses. And so if you can make money off of a lending business, you're going to have far more capital available for acquisition than debit-only companies. And so you're going to start to see the hybridization of all of these point solutions into much more fully featured mobile-first banking. And I'd say take, you know, keep an eye out for companies like Upgrade and Lending Club now with its Radius Bank acquisition and probably Marcus. And unless the times of the world and the kind of get their act together, I think they're actually going to hit a ceiling pretty, pretty soon. But no, it's, it's fun because nobody's talking about that, but it seems like so clear as day to me. It's like, it's so obvious as the nose in my face. Yeah, we've had, uh, we have Renal uh, from Upgrade Lending Club, of course, on, on the show. He's a friend and just the growth that they're seeing is, is incredible, right? It's, it's really defining the market. But um, so maybe just thinking about the companies that you like, right? In the past, you've commented that you're not necessarily looking for companies that want an exit with incumbents. And in fact, we don't see that a lot because of regulation, but also like maybe comment on the fact that you prefer standalone companies, right? Uh, why is that? Because I mean, the exit strategy is important. Well, you know, the market size so easily supports companies taking an independent path. And the incumbents in this case, while they have the balance sheet to be able to absorb businesses like the new entrants, the trading multiple delta is so great that every and any acquisition would be diluted. There'd be no way for them to spin an acquisition as accretive. And so I think it's between that and their hubris. You know, if you look at Lending Club, by way of example, and I'm obviously still very close with Renault and also now Scott Sanborn, who runs it, you could have easily argued that a bank should have bought Lending Club when it was trading at four and a half dollars a share, which was like an enterprise value of maybe four or five hundred million dollars. But the banks themselves think that their capabilities are so mature that surely nobody else could be underwriting loans more efficiently than they are, or nobody could be acquiring customers more efficiently than their bank branches do. Uh, and so they just have this hubris that suggests that they shouldn't do it. And then, of course, they just choke on the price because unless you're talking about a multiple of book, which is how that industry trades, uh, like the idea of multiple of revenue like makes their heads spin off their shoulders. And so I think it's just it's way too hard to convince the incumbents to do what, in hindsight, will probably have looked like the right answer, but I get kind of why they just have a hard time with that. So I'd much rather back a company and have them run play the long game. But I do think in 20 to 30 years, in the fullness of time, 20 to 30 years, your generation has no real affinity to Wells Fargo, Citi, JP Morgan Chase, or Allstate or, or State Farm or you know, pick your or Schwab or what have you. And there'll be just a whole new generation of brands, uh, whether it be Lending Club or Robinhood or or Hippo or Lemonade or whatever, and that these companies will ultimately basically steal market share and you'll see a wealth transfer from incumbent brands today to new entrant brands uh, because they, they're they more mobile centric. They're playing more to the millennial audience who will ultimately become the 
who are the buyers of these services. It's just a matter of time. And maybe one or two of those brands will survive the transition, but many won't. Many will become like, you know, I think of it as like Fuji, like the, the computer company. You know, like nobody talks about like, you know, Xerox and Fuji and all these other companies that used to be dominant in the 1970s. Like they're, just, they're gone. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I can get behind that. I, I agree with you. Charles, you also pay a lot of attention to other regions outside of the U.S., right? And, and particularly Latin America, close to my heart, for sure. You led a very impressive investment, which is Rappi, one of the most successful companies of Latin America today, right? But you didn't stop there, right? You, you, you have a thesis with LATAM, you, you have more investments. Tell us about why you're interested in the region. Back in 2007 and 8 timeframe, it was very in vogue to think about expanding your geography internationally. And the two obvious expansions at the time were India and China. And we actually, as a firm, started investing in those strategies. And then, you know, the crash hit, the financial crash, and we pulled back, which I think was good. Those were very difficult. You had language barriers in China, you had time zone barriers in India, infrastructure barriers in India. So the idea of these huge markets was very attractive. The access to those markets was very difficult. Well, it just so happens that like right under our nose in Latin South America, you have this really, really large population, mostly speaking one language. So somewhat of a homogeneous market. And if you look at the size of the market, and you look at the size of the cities, people talk about how there are 40 cities in China, I think it's over 10 million people, whatever the number is. Well, it's roughly the same thing in Latin America. And nobody talks about that. And if you look at the internet penetration, smartphone penetration, demographic trend, uh, socioeconomic trend, you'd point to the idea that Latin America is actually a way more attractive market for a US-based investor to want to invest in than either India or China. Like you could easily conclude that. But then you'd say, okay, like what, what are the venture dollars flowing into the region look like? And uh, this is a fascinating, this was like one of those random funny stats, which is there's more capital, venture capital deployed in Berlin than in all of Latin America. Berlin, one city. It's just, it's so massively underinvested. And it's just a tiny, tiny fraction of the capital that gets invested in India and China. And so then you say, okay, well, if it has all these great aspects to it, why? Why is it the case? Uh, I think it's a couple of reasons. Uh, one is people historically said, you know, the talent to start companies in Latin America wasn't good enough. And I'll tell you that that historically has been true. But if you look over the last five plus years, you know, the smartest talent coming out of Latin America that has gone to you know, American top business schools doesn't go to McKinsey in New York City anymore. They go back to the Latin American region where they have a great education, great US-based networks, really good understanding of the startups that work here, and really strong family and national ties back in the region. So, I mean, they can marshal resources, hire great people, and start companies really productively. And so the other open question is, well, there haven't been many huge exits in Latin America. And that is still a question. But with Nubank and Rappi and what Mercado Libre has done, it sure feels like we're going to kind of blow the cover off of that constraint soon. And so we're excited for that. And so it's definitely one of our strategies that we're, we're going full steam ahead on. That's exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I agree with you. And just tomorrow, uh, we are releasing our interview with Marcelo Claure, who, of course, uh, one of the things he does is lead the SoftBank Latin America Fund, which it has, has redefined investing in the region, has just added a lot of dollars. 
So exciting times to come there. Charles, one thing we haven't asked too many of our guests who are venture capitalists is about maybe some of your early mistakes. I'm sure you, you've learned a ton over the past 15 plus years as a professional VC. You know, any, any early mistakes or key lessons you've learned over time? You know, I, everything I do teaches me something. <laughs> and for sure, the number of mistakes you can make in this industry is virtually infinite. I will say, I'm sure that in the first couple of years, I made all the classic mistakes that operators make in coming into venture, right? I, I looked at a company through the lens of, as an operator, what would I do to fix it and run it versus what were the entrepreneurs going to do with it? And so you can project upon a project what you believe to be true yourself. But as an investor, at the end of the day, you have to rely on the people that you're backing to do whatever they're going to do, not to do whatever you think they should do. So I'm sure I made that classic mistake 15 years ago. Like, oh man, it's such a cool company. If I ran it, I would do X, Y, Z. Well, I don't run it. And it's not going to do X, Y, Z unless the founder thinks they should do X, Y, and Z. That was one. I think another challenge is we all aspirationally want to create the, that romantic notion of being behind you know, the next great internet company. You know, we were fortunate enough at Foundation Capital to invest in Netflix, right? one of the four largest companies in the internet created since the year 2000. And so every company you'd love nothing more than to kind of in your career have one of those career-defining opportunities. And maybe because the fintech markets are large, I tend to project, I think all of my companies have some chance at becoming whatever the next JP Morgan pick your company. And it's hard to take an objective look at something that you have put so much time into and built to try to figure out what is the actual right timing and what is the right form of exit. And for example, my investment in Lending Club at the peak was worth almost a billion dollars to the firm, to our firm. And I didn't want to upset Renault by distributing. And I didn't want to hurt the stock and how it was trading at all. And I didn't want to signal to the market that you know we were selling. And so unlike some of the other investors, I kind of said, no, no, I'm going to buy into this 10-year vision of where Lending Club can be in 10 years. And so we sold, but we sold you know, at probably 20% of its peak valuation. And so I think that's really hard. Like venture capitalists put all this time in to make an investment decision, invest and help manage a company. And yet the timing of exit uh, is probably the most important decision you'll make in terms of what value you're delivering to your limited partners. And it's the hardest decision to make because that's just not what we're trained to go do. We're not, we're not public stock investors. And so it's you know, just, just hard to make that right decision. Yeah, that was super interesting. And that also implies that your investment approach maybe has been refined over time right? When someone walks through the door or modern times shows up on your screen, what are you looking for in an entrepreneurial team, in a founding team? That the quality of the entrepreneur or team will ultimately determine the outcome period. Market size is great. Early signs of product market fit is great. Funding is great, but none of it matters compared to the quality of the, particularly of the entrepreneur who is the CEO. And there are multiple examples of companies in my portfolio that maybe had no right turning into something interesting, but only because the entrepreneur was so exceptional did they navigate their way into something great. And had they not been of that quality, 
they would have just languished, honestly. And so as much as we can get enamored with traction, with the number of customers, with the CAC to LTV ratio, with the capital efficiency, whatever you want to list, really, really the outcome ultimately is going to be determined by the quality of the entrepreneur. And I even continue to forget that message. Like I literally, I could like tape it to my computer screen and I'll still get excited about a company and about its product and about its traction and still try to convince myself that the entrepreneur can be good enough when I know the difference between an amazing entrepreneur and a good entrepreneur. And uh, even I'm still subject to making that mistake. So that's a good reminder. And what about, you know, You've been tracking and investing in, in several verticals within fintech. Are there some that maybe have underwhelmed you, some that where you would have liked to see a lot more momentum, more, more action, and, and haven't really materialized? I think the one that jumps out at me is the different aspects of asset management. And uh, I had invested in a company called Motif, which was an amazing product. I mean, truly an amazing product. The ability to invest behind ideas rather than companies is a very powerful idea. You know, I want to invest behind tablet computing, or I want to invest behind the blockchain, or I want to invest behind the China internet becoming a dominant um, part of the internet economy, right? Like, I don't need to know the details of which companies and in which percentages, like this, this motif business will just solve it for me. And also underneath it, they had some like, cool things like fractional trading and you could change your portfolio mixes and all those kinds of things. And in asset management, uh, it has historically been true and it still remains true that as good as your product is, it's all about distribution. And the one exception to that, you could argue is Robinhood, but it's actually not an exception in that by making it free or, or you know, the marketing slang of free, even though it's not free, they basically broke the distribution stranglehold on the industry. And that enabled them to kind of uh, catapult into the position they position got to, particularly with like low value customers, but so many low value customers that it's become a highly relevant business today. And I always thought that our product was so good that it would overcome the lack of distribution from investment advisors, from investment advisor platforms, from the ability to go direct consumer retail. And it just is the case that distribution muscle still really matters in asset management. Yeah. We were actually in the last month and the following month where we're bringing some of the asset management, fintechs, Robinhood included, and it's super interesting what's going on there. And now I guess the next step, which is alternative investing and those platforms are catching on, right? And what about the road ahead, Charles? Like, uh, you, So you've been investing for 15 years. Do you see yourself investing for another 15 uh, and, and more? Another 15, maybe that's a lot. <laughs> uh, <laughs> my next milestone is when my kids are all out of the house in college. I, I feel like, it, like when I go and become an empty nester, that's certainly a decision point in my career. So that's more than five years away. So like that's my next time horizon, which is a couple of fun cycles. And then probably beyond that, I, you know, the intellectual stimulation is so great that I don't know why I would want to stop. But I'll certainly that, you know, I kind of like, I'm so heads down. We're raising our 10th fund right now, kind of wrapping that up. This is the strongest team we've ever had. I think at Foundation, the performance is insane right now. And so I kind of feel like we're going to keep playing the hand we've got. 
for quite some time and then I'll evaluate. But someday out there, I don't know if it's teaching or board work or advising. I, I don't know what the next thing will be, but it's, it's out there always. And Charles, uh, last question before we let you go. Something we'd love to talk about is maybe a little bit about your personal life and, and your hobbies. What are some of your favorite hobbies outside of, of investing and, and foundations? For the last 15 years, it was, uh, you know, it was very much centered around my kids and it was like very heavy participating with them in coaching their sports. So whether it was coaching AOSO soccer or then baseball, basketball, like that was a lot for me. But in the last five years, uh, it's actually transitioned now that they're older. You know, I would say that the coaches, for the most part, are like, like sophisticated to a level beyond my experience set. I became a pilot. And uh, so now I fly a lot. I'm an instrument rated pilot at this point. And you know, that gives me the ability to kind of move all over the place, which is kind of fun. Uh, and my son, uh, one of my sons shares in that passion. He's in process of getting his license, almost has it. Uh, so that's definitely, let's say that. And I have this, I really enjoy kind of acquiring homes and renovating them. So I guess I'm kind of busy doing that as well. Yeah. No shortage of things to do for me. Yeah. I think flying has to be one of our coolest hobbies that we've heard on this ship. Yeah. What's, a, yeah, what's the biggest plane you've, uh, you've piloted? So I, I own a Cirrus uh, SR22T, which is kind of turboprop plane that has a parachute. And it's not large, it's five seat. And, um, you know, it takes my family easily up to Tahoe, Orange County, Vegas, Scottsdale, Seattle. That's kind of the range. We've talked a little bit about whether I'd step up to the Vision Jet, which is a, another Cirrus plane, which would be very easy for me to fly. Like the, the step up from my plane to that plane is like a weekend of work and that's it. Uh, or the Pilatus, which is a really cool plane because you can just haul, it's like a suburban, you just like load it up with golf clubs and skis and people and dogs and you don't have to worry about the weight. But at the same time, like I'm a practical flyer, meaning one of my passions is getting someplace. Some people like to sort of be up in the air flying, but I like to actually use it to get someplace. And so if you've got no place that you need to go that requires the additional size, thrust, cost, like you should just be happy with what you've got. So I try to be content with my Cirrus, but it probably is one more step up in my future at some point. I'm sure it's come in handy during COVID. Yeah, it's been great. Like I've not been on a commercial airplane, obviously, for over a year, but we've been all over the place. Yeah. Amazing. Well, Charles, thank you again for joining. We do appreciate it. And it's even extra special when it's an alum. So thank you for joining us. Obviously, stop by and you're invited after, uh, after we get back to normal. So then again, thank you. Yeah, Miguel, let's, uh, let's go find somebody to co-invest in in Latin America once you get your fund up and running. That'd be fun. I love it. Let's do it. Thank you, Charles. Right. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.